0: We return to the book of Hebrews and we are in a little kind of mini section, not many by size, but like a mini sermon series, and it covers Hebrews chapter nine through ten eighteen. This morning is part two of a three part series, mostly most likely three part, called the blood work, part two. And this is chapter 9, verse 15 to verse 28. And there are notes on my left, your right, on the, they used to be on the thermos. So let me read the text. And again, note as I read how many times it uses the word blood. For this reason, verse 15, for this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. For where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. For a covenant is valid only when men are dead, for it is never enforced while the one who made it lives. Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated Inaugurated without blood, for in every commandment had been spoken. Moses to all the people, according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats and water, and scarlet wool and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, "This is the blood of the covenant which has commanded you." And in the same way, he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with the blood. And according to the law, one almost say all things are cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. Therefore it is necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with a blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as much as it is appointed for men to die once and after this comes judgment. So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. Lord, as we continue to worship you in your word, and as we look at this detailed book and this detailed chapter, Lord, we pray that you would use... For the power of your spirit, you would use your word to speak to our hearts and minister to our hearts, Lord, according to your glory and your wisdom and our need. We trust even what your word says in Hebrews 4.12. The word of God is alive and active, uh, sharper than a double-edged sword, able to penetrate these thoughts and intentions of the heart. And so we pray you would do your work this morning, Lord, and we give you the glory. Amen. Last, well, not last week, but maybe two or three weeks ago, when we started this section, we talked about how there are so many hymns that talk about the blood, the death of Christ. And if we're not careful, even the way that we can talk about it or even sing about the cross work of Christ can give this idea almost if if we're not careful, if there was an outsider or even an unbeliever and he first would hear us talking or singing, he might think that we were a part of a death cult. For example, these are songs that we commonly sing. There's a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all guilt and sin. If you were an unbeliever, an atheist, and you heard these words, what would you think? There is a fountain filled with blood, and it's drawn from somebody's veins. And if you take a bath in it, all your guilt's going to be gone. It It does sound kind of weird. If you had not heard about Christ and his death and the cross... I think it would sound odd. Another song says, there is wonder working power in the blood. It can almost sound like a vampire movie. There's power, power in the blood. It can sound a little bit off. Another one, and there, there's many, what can make me hold again nothing but the blood of Jesus. Now, to us, those are precious songs, and they make sense. But to some, it would sound odd. As I said, it could almost sound like a death cult. Now, I I say this because, for example, 1 Corinthians 1, when it talks about Jesus being crucified, for the Jew, it is what? Scandalous. And for the Greek, what is it? Foolishness. So there is a, a type of foolishness. There is a type of stumbling that the cross work of Jesus Christ brings to people. At least it can, and it should, and it did for these Hebrews that this book is written to. They had professed that Jesus Christ is Lord. They had trusted Him. And now their life didn't get easier. It got more difficult. And there were maybe family members, others in their communities, that were calling them back to their Jewish roots to leave Christ and to get back involved in the Old Testament sacrificial system. And this letter is being written to them. Encourage them to stay with Christ. And we'll see in this section that it, it seems there was a temptation through persecution that may have gone something like this. Why are you following a, a dead hero? Perhaps Jesus was a prophet. Perhaps he was somewhat of a good man. But he's, he's dead. He, he died. You say he's the Messiah. How could God's Messiah die? And I heard that conversation a few weeks ago between a a Christian, and I think it was uh, this other, I forgot his name, Ben Shapiro, was talking about how the Jews do not think that the Messiah would or could die. Perhaps this is the same type of persecution, pressure that these believers were under. What this book is communicating However, to these beloved Christians and to us is this, build your faith upon the the blood work of Jesus Christ. To go forward in faith and never go back in faith, you must build your faith upon his work on the cross, which means his, his death work, his substitutionary atonement on the cross. That's the idea of blood. And this section, again, Hebrews 9, all the way to 10.18, is going to give several building blocks on how we do this. How we build our faith upon the the blood work, the, the cross work of Christ. And first we said that it's by glorifying it. That is, especially in your sinfulness, the way that you deal with your sin is not to muster up your own courage to do better, but rather you went straight to the cross of Jesus Christ. That's why you have 9.14, where it says, how much more with the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. We have eternal redemption As it says in 9.12, not because of how well we have lived or will live our life, but because of how well Christ lived his life and how perfect his death was on the cross and his resurrection. And so that is our trust. So when we sin, we make much of the forgiveness of God in Christ. This morning, we're going to look at the second building block, and that is this. Build your faith upon the blood work of Jesus Christ by preparing for your future judgment. So we build up our faith in Christ by trusting his work on the cross, that is his blood work. We do that by when we sin, we don't point at ourselves in terms of I'm going to do better, but rather we say, Lord, I'm the sinner, forgive me for your namesake. Like Psalm twenty five says, that's what David did. Lord, forgive me my sin for the sake of your name. My sin is great. Forgive me for the sake of your name. But second, we get ourselves ready for future judgment by trusting, relying, looking at the blood work of Christ. We get ready for the future, not by again making our, our belts uh, tighter by resolving, you know, by my work and my own effort. I'm going to do more ministry but rather we get ready for the future judgment. How? By trusting the work of Christ on the cross. And that's what this chapter is going to teach us. And you can see that at the end of this whole chapter, and I'll talk about this later on, verse 27 and 28 talks about the certain death of everybody and judgment and the return of Christ. That's where all of this leads to. And so again... This second building block is prepare yourself for future judgment foundationally, primarily by looking at the cross, by trusting in the cross of Christ. Is your future, when you think about your future, is it one of gloom and doom? When you think about Christ returning or your death and you stand before God, is that something which absolutely petrifies you? Or do you look at Christ's return and/or your death and going to 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 heaven to be with Christ and the Lord? Is that something which you you long for? Not not the death part, but to be with the Lord, to be with God, to be with Christ. How you view that, how you view your your departure and standing before God, can give you joy, or or can cause you to be anxious and depressed, your whole existence. One view will free you, one view will bind you. Now, how do we do this preparing for our future judgment? Well, this passage is going to unfold this first, and this way, verse 15, and includes understanding that Jesus Christ is not just a Messiah, but he's the mediator. He's not just even a martyred Messiah, but he's the mediator. This is the statement that's made in verse 15, and then verse 16 and 17 is going to be an illustration, and then verse 18 to 22, he's going to expand on that illustration, and then verses 23 to 28, he's going to apply it. Verse 15, he makes this claim You can see this in verse 15. He is the mediator of a new covenant. He's not just, it's not claimed by God, by Christ, by the apostles, that simply Jesus is a hero, a prophet, or the Messiah, but that he is the mediator. That is, that he's the the go-between, the one that intervenes between God and man. He represents both God to us and represents us before God. In that sense, he's the mediator of a new covenant. Verse 15, keep looking there, you'll see that it says, for this reason. Well, he's summing up all that was previously said in verses 1 through 14. Summing up all of that, you can sum it up by saying he is the mediator. That's the whole point. Verse 11. But when Christ appears a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands. That is to say, not of his creation. And he obtained, verse 12, eternal redemption. Meaning that he is our mediator. And again, this is very important for these Hebrew Christians that are here because they're being drawn back to the Old Testament sacrificial system by saying that the Messiah, who you claim to be the Messiah Jesus, he died. Why would you follow a dead Messiah? Why would you follow a dead hero? Because he's not just a dead hero. He's the mediator. The Messiah, the mediator, and he's risen again. This is what... This whole passage is saying, in fact, keep looking at verse 15 when it says he is the mediator of a new covenant. That last part, mediator of a new covenant, is actually emphatic in the Greek text. It's, it's placed first. What's being emphasized right away in this passage is this new covenant, which was prophesied where? Jeremiah, and also in the book of Ezekiel, this new covenant of Psalm even 22 and Isaiah 53. All of this, this new covenant, the one that is representing God to us and us to God, is Jesus Christ. Yes, a death has taken place. The, the Messiah was to die. Psalm 22, Isaiah 53. Praise God. He has risen again. The focus here, though, is on this claim that he's not just a martyred Messiah. He's not just Zechariah. He's not Isaiah. He's not John the Baptist. He is the great high priest. He is the promised mediator between God and man. And because of him, there is this new covenant. That's what verse 15 is saying. And you can even keep looking at this verse. This death has taken place for the redemption, for the freedom of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant. When you and I sin, what is that? When you and I sin, that is an infinite crime against God. That's what transgression means. God has said, don't do this. He's drawn a line in the sand. We step over it. That is a crime. It's you and I shaking our fist At God. And this passage is saying in the Old Testament, Old Testament believers, that's how they lived their life. That's how they could be characterized as transgressors. But when Christ died, finally, there was this true final redemption. They could be forgiven in the Old Testament as they look forward to Christ. But now that Christ has died, he has truly, actually, in reality, freed them from the condemnation and wrath of God. Keep looking at verse 15. It is this mediator. Not just, again, not a martyred messiah or a martyred hero like John Huss, our William Tyndale. No, this was the representative of God, the representative of man, because he was chapter 2 of Hebrews. He was both God and man. And by his work on the cross, he brought out this new covenant. And look what it says at the end of verse 15. Those who have been called, those that God has initiated salvation and by grace drawn them to himself and saved them, this new covenant by the mediator, Jesus Christ, did this that they might receive the promise of an eternal inheritance. Basically, what verse 15 is saying is, for your forgiveness of sins, redemption from transgression, for your eternal inheritance, that is your, your glorious future, it all hinges upon one person. Jesus Christ, who mediates between God the Father and God the man. He mediates between God the Father and man. This is Jesus. It's really incredible if you look at verse 15, to receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. This inheritance that we have is considered Again, as it says in Hebrews chapter two, something that is infinitely glory. Hebrews chapter two verse ten, and bringing many sons to glory. Or you can even look at Hebrews eleven, where it talks about Moses was, and even Abraham. Abraham and both Moses were looking to something beyond their present possessions. Even chapter eleven, when it talks about faith, faith is seeking for this trust that there is going to be this reward. Part of this new covenant that Jesus mediates, that He intervenes and gives to us based upon Himself, is forgiveness of sins, but also more glory and really more health eventually and more wealth eventually than all the great kingdoms of the world of all history could ever give to you. That's what it means when it says eternal inheritance. A glorious inheritance. And so the Spirit of God is seeking to minister to these beloved believers. Remember, their loved ones have been put in prison. They themselves had had their precious belongings uh, stolen. They already didn't have that much. They were being robbed. Their loved ones were being put in prison. And then they were being tempted. Come back. Come back to the Old Testament sacrificial system. You followed this Christ and your life was supposed to get better. And it got worse. You need to come back. And so here, the Spirit of God is ministering to them and saying, No, stick with Jesus. Go forward in the faith. Trust His work, His death on the cross for your sins, because He is the mediator. He's not just this prophet who died. He died and rose again, as it says in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 3 through 4, and He gives you forgiveness of sins and a glorious future. Now, He's going to explain this by way of illustration. And you see this in verses 16 and 17. Now, my Bible, when I look at verses 16 and 17, and probably your Bible, but, but maybe not, it depends upon the version you have. In verse 16, it says, For where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. But if I look in my margin, it says, Testament. Some versions here in verse 16 and 17 use the word will or testament. But it is the exact same Greek word that you see in verse 15. It's the same Greek word. The ethekes. It's the normal word for covenant. That is, this agreement, this this promise that's made to benefit the both parties, at least to benefit one party, this promise of agreements is made. That's the idea of a covenant. But in verses 16 through 17, it's the same exact Greek word. The and Standard uses the term covenant, but that's probably not the best translation. The better translation would be will or Testament. Verses 16 and 17 is an illustration of verse 15, and it's a play on words. It uses the same word, diathekes, but it's the idea more of a last will and testament. Like if somebody, like when my dad died, before he died, he included it in his will, I leave the house to both my sons. That is a last will and testament. So my dad died, he passed away. My brother Jeff and I sold the house and split that 50-50. That was his last will and testament. And we actually saw it. We we, we read it. It is a type of a covenant. A will and last uh, testimony and this will is this type of covenant, this agreement that's made. But here in verses 16 through 17, it's illustrating here that for this to happen, for this type of covenant to happen, it has to be activated by what? By death. Right? Again, if you can understand the situation that these Hebrews, these believers, the Hebrews were in, in context of the whole book, and that day and age, it seems that they were being told... Why would you trust Jesus Christ? Because he's he's dead. He died. That's a fact. Now we know, based upon the word, he rose again. But these unbelieving Jews didn't understand, or at least wouldn't accept, that the Old Testament would say that the Messiah, that the Son of Man, had to die. Why would the Messiah have to die? And so he's explaining here why. Because there is a type of covenant that is made that cannot be activated, truly activated, and turned on unless the one that made it dies. That's verses 16 and 17. For a covenant is valid only when men are dead, for it is never enforced by the one who made it lives. 16 and 17, I think once we understand This word, diathekinesi, and its context here, then we can understand that this is an illustration saying that when you have a last will and testament, somebody says, I promise that when I die, this goes to you. That's what verses 16 and 17. the, The new covenant is like a last will and testament. It's like God left a will and says that when I die on the cross for your sins, then... Your forgiveness is truly truly activated, and your eternal inheritance is truly truly activated and made real but it it only comes through what that the Messiah had to die now we of course uh, agree with that and believe that, but remember for for these believers that they, they may have been taught differently, and there was pressure from the outside community to say. Why would you want to follow a a dead Messiah? Why would you want to follow a king that was so weak he died on the cross? So the Spirit of God is saying part of the Old Testament promise was this last, it was a covenant, a promise that God made, but it was like a last will and testament that could only be inaugurated by death. And what the Spirit of God is doing in this passage is building an argument. First through the statement of verse 15. Jesus is the mediator between God and man. Verses 16 and 17. It is an illustration saying this covenant that God made where he gives you the Holy Spirit inside of you and forgives you of all your sin, places your sin behind his back, gives you all the glories of heaven that are more richer than Anything Earth could ever ever give you, all that comes through death. And now, a long, long time ago, years ago, somebody said to me, "Tom, are you saying deaf or death?" So I'm trying to say D E A T H. If it sounds like D E A F, that's I'm not saying you can't hear. I'm seeking to say that somebody. Has to die, somebody has to die, and so you have really in this section verses fifteen to twenty eight really you have blood, 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 and on top of that you have what death, 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 why is that? That's why I started the introduction by saying if we don't explain some things, it could sound like a what kind of cult? A death cult. Paul said he gloried in the cross. Why would you glory in a a method of execution? Because sin is infinitely heinous to God. That's why. And the Messiah, who was to be the mediator, had to bear those sins, which would mean death. Now, verses 18 through 22 is going to give, not simply an illustration, but as I just said, this price for forgiveness is death. And at least six times, verses 18 through 22, will have the word uh, blood. Blood. So look at verse 18. Therefore, based on the, the statement in verse 15, and then based on this illustration, that for the new covenant to be activated, there had to be death. Verse 18 then says, even though not just the the second covenant, not just the second testament, not just the, the new covenant, but even the first covenant, even the old covenant, it was not activated, it was not launched without blood. There was blood that was involved. Right? The Old Testament. You can even go back to Moses. And when they put blood over the doorposts of the house, and they could go to Mount Sinai and read the book of Leviticus. The old covenant was activated and founded upon blood, which means both life and death. So again, the Lord is giving a type of apologetic to these Hebrew believers that they can use with their Hebrew friends. That even the whole Old Testament system, if you read the book of Leviticus, and of course other books in the Old Testament illustrate it, that there had to be what? The price of sin is what? The wage of sin is death. And that's what the Old Testament religious sacrificial system taught was blood, 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 death, death, death. So if a Hebrew that wasn't a Christian was saying, but the Messiah, he wouldn't die. The the son of man, he's to be the conquering king. Absolutely. And the whole book of Leviticus and Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53 and then there's even more Would say that there has to be death, To cover sin. You can go back to where? Genesis chapter 3 through 5. There had to be covering. Not just fig leaves, but there there had to be animals that were slain that would cover Adam and Eve. Really, since the, the beginning. But you can even look at verse 19 and 20. And it talks about even when Moses was speaking, Moses gets the commandments from God. Look at verse 19. And then Moses is speaking. Basically, he's preaching to people, explaining to the people that the law of God, that God gave them. And at the same time, he took the blood of calves and goats and they had some water and the scarlet wool and hyssop and he sprinkled the Bible, the word of God and the people. Saying, this is the blood of the covenant which God gave to you. So here's Moses. He's preaching the word. He's giving out the word of God. I don't know if he did it or some of the people. And they're sprinkling people with the blood. Does that sound a little bit odd to you? It sounds a little bit odd to me. I wouldn't want to be covered or sprinkled with blood from a, a bull or a goat. But this was to signify that in order for them to be redeemed and to be the people of God, there was a price to pay for sin. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And by no means will he let the guilty go unpunished. And if God was not holy, then he wouldn't be God. And so God, as holy as he is, is also loving. As holy as God is, he is also loving just as much loving. And so he's provided a solution for that. The solution is ultimately Christ. In the Old Testament, it was preparing the people, saying that, I'm going to take care of your sin, but the price for sin, the soul who sins, what? Dies. Because God by no means can look at sin. And if they don't know the Lord then that would be an eternity in hell. And so there is this communication of repetition that's given to the people of God in the Old Testament and to us today that to pay for sin because God is so holy, there is a price, there is a wage. God is so holy and sin is so horrible that that penalty is eternal death and separation from God or somebody else that's perfect like a spotless lamb of God must die in the place of that sinner. But death must happen. The wrath of God must be satisfied. Not because God's some kind of angry troll up in heaven. He's an infinite God of love and righteousness and holiness. And again, provides a solution. But that solution is the blood, the volunteer death of Christ on the cross for all sinners who trust him. And you can look at verse 21 and 22, and it says that not just that, but even to bring home the point more in the Old Testament, it wasn't just that the the law of God, and it wasn't just the people was sprinkled. What else was, was sprinkled? Everything, (laughs) everything, almost. You can see that in verse 21, right? All the vessels of the ministry with the blood. It it would be like today, I'm going to, if I was going to sprinkle, okay, I'm going to sprinkle you guys with blood. I'm going to sprinkle the chairs. You know what? That's not enough. I'm going to sprinkle everything. I'm going to sprinkle the whole pulpit, the the piano, everything. The whole... (laughs) Why? Because it's the picture that sin is pervasive and its breadth and its depth, it's penetrating down to the deepest part of our souls and it covers all of us. It's saying that all of us are what? Sinners. And we're all dirty. Praise God, first John one seven, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. But because even though as believers, though sin doesn't reign, it does remain. And though our nature has changed, the nature of sin hasn't changed within us, and it still creates problems and sinful issues within us. And so the picture here is, you know what? Cleanse everything. Everything should be cleansed. And that's why verse 22 says, according to the law, almost everything is cleansed with blood. Everything can't just be Water. It has to be something that's more powerful. And that is the substitutionary death of Christ on the cross for sinners. And, and so verse 22 sums up by saying, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And that is, w- without death, without that Lamb of God, not just bleeding is the idea, but actually bleeding to the point of death, Without his work, there can be no forgiveness. So the Spirit of God is saying, look, the whole Old Testament system was saying that there can't be forgiveness unless the one that is perfect himself dies on the cross. He who hangs on a tree is cursed. Paul uses that in Galatians chapter 3. Cursed is everyone that doesn't do all that the law says. But Christ became a curse for us. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. You can't work your own way to heaven. Somebody else must pay the price. Can Mary pay the price for you? Can the Pope pay the price? Can Michael the Archangel pay the price? What if for a thousand years you lived as a missionary in India? Would that pay the price? There is no work, no merit that we can do. There is only one that has shed his blood that is so perfect, never sinned, either in mouth, body, or deed, died on the cross, receiving the wrath of God for all of our sins, and rose again, and his work was so victorious, and so sufficient and efficient that God received him back up to heaven. And there he lives to intercede for us forever. It's his work, not our work. So what this passage is saying to us, but also to these Hebrew Christians... Christians, why would you go back to that Old Testament sacrificial system? It was pointing to this one who was to come. And he came and he achieved his mission and his mission was successful. Why would you go back there? The blood has been shed. That death that all of that promised has actually happened. Redemption accomplished. The Lamb of God was slain for you. Now, the Spirit of God through this writer is going to make some application of all of this. And that's why you see in verse 23, it says, therefore. You see that the therefore. It's going to take all that was said in verses 15 through 22. is going to sum it up and apply it. And as I said, oftentimes... not and not everywhere but there are many places in the bible where you can find the main point of the passage the actual intention of the passage at times can be at the end like if you read a book you have the intention the conclusion the main thing normally at the end of a book but also in its different chapters each chapter normally can kind of come to a a point at the end, and it has something it's trying to say. That's also what's happening here in this section. Therefore, knowing that there is a mediator, that Jesus Christ is not just this martyred prophet, but actually he is the one that became the mediator of the new covenant by the necessary death that he had to make for your sin. Based upon that, there are some things that need to be applied, that need to be talked about. Therefore, it was necessary for these copies in the heavens to be cleansed with these. So first, the the first thing that is said about application is that we would understand, know, and apply to our hearts that Jesus Christ was a better sacrifice and a better place. He's a better sacrifice and a better place for us That's what verse 23 and 24 is saying. And like verse 15 and 16 through 17, verse 23 is going to give a a principle, and then verse 24 is basically going to apply this principle. Verse 23 is just assuming, it's stating that of necessity, these sketches of the things in heavens, that is the whole Old Testament sacrificial system, It had to be cleansed. It wasn't perfect. The heavenly things themselves, though, are with better sacrifices than than even these things. And in verse 23 and 24, for Christ and that enter a holy place made with hands. There is this... This principle, this statement, this motif that the whole Old Testament system, it wasn't evil, it wasn't bad, but it was merely a sketch or a copy, and it was made by people, by humans. But Christ went to a place that was even better, because it was heaven, and it was right before the very presence of God. The Old Testament system, verse 23, even the instruments, you remember the, the, the lamp, the altar, the Ark of the Covenant, they all had to have blood sprinkled on them. In that sense, they had to be cleansed and they had to be set apart. But the heavenly things themselves are better sacrifices than these. The, the copies were pointing forward to heaven and the glories of Christ but they needed to be cleansed and set aside but Christ went into a holy place and really it's emphatic in the text that is not made with hands for Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands that's set forward God made it he went into heaven now to appear in the presence of God for us the very ideas that When Christ died, and he went into the actual Holy of Holies, in the Old Testament system, the high priest, once a year could go into the earthly Holy of Holies, but it all had to be cleansed, and it all had to be done in such a way to be sure that nothing was was defiled because it was imperfect and it was representing a, a truer reality. It was a shadow. But Christ actually, when he died, went into the, the very presence of God, went into the Holy of Holies itself. That's the point of verses 23 and 24. A better sacrifice in a better place with a better person. You can see that at the end of verse 24. Now, to appear in the presence of God, in these last two words, for us. For us. For you, if you've trusted Christ. The great high priest, and even the next section, we'll talk about this. The great high priest would go in once a year, offer a sacrifice, come back out, and then had to do it again next year. Jesus entered into the Holy of Holies, not just to copy the real thing not just a, a type of a token presence of God that would have been there, the of glory of God, but actually face-to-face with God the Father himself and presented his work that he had accomplished. And he did it for us, for you. There is here with this, in the presence of God, with this Greek phrase, God the Son is face-to-face with God the Father ministering, on your behalf, before God the Father. Based not upon your blood work, based not upon your sacrifices, but based upon His sacrifice that He made on your behalf. This is the gospel. For us. Do you know that God is for you? Believer, that Jesus is for you? That the Son of God, the King of Kings, the Lion of God... The captain of the host of the Lord's army is for you. That should give us all great joy and gladness. Further, you can see in verses 25 and 26, just summarizing what was said, but this only had to happen once. Verse 25 and 26 is saying at the perfect time. You can see verse 26, but now, once at the consummation of the ages, he appeared, that is Jesus Christ, to put sin away by the sacrifice of himself. He only had to do this once. Again, is what's being emphasized, and then he'll talk much more about it in chapter 10. But this only happened. Only one time, not year after year after year. Why? Because it was efficient and sufficient. Did I say efficient? It was efficient and sufficient to satisfy God's wrath and to do away with our sin. You can see that in in this verse. It even uses these terms about our sin. The sin will be put away. He has been manifest to put away sin. Sin by the sacrifice of himself. And it was so powerful, so right, so true, that it only happened, it only had to happen one time. And again, look at the end of verse 26, by the sacrifice of himself. I started this sermon by talking about when you think of future judgment, does it cause you to have doom and gloom? Are you scared? Are you scared? Maybe you're thinking, I haven't sacrificed enough of my life. And so when I get to stand before God, I could be found wanting. The truth of the matter is that each one of us in this room, if we stand before God on our own, we will be found what? Guilty. Guilty. We'll be found wanting. Especially if we're pointing to, Lord, look at the sacrifice I've made. It's not about the sacrifice I've made, it's about the one sacrifice that He made Himself. This is how we have eternal and present joy, by looking at that satisfactory sacrifice He made Himself for us. Now, what is amazing then is what happens next, in verses 27 and verse 28. What can you be sure about in this life? You've heard the old phrase. uh, Death and taxes. Verses 27 and 28, is saying something similar to that. At the end of all this, it's saying there are some things you can be entirely certain about. It doesn't say death and taxes. It says death, judgment, and the return of Christ. There are three things that you can be certain about. E- even more certain than taxes and death is death, judgment, and the return of Christ. And so when we think this is what the Spirit is saying to these believers and to every single person in this room is more certain than, let's say, Mount... Pray, does it happen today? Let's say Mount Rainier blew up. Boom! And all the lava shoots out. Man, that... I, I, sometimes I scratch my head and I'm driving home and I see Mount Rainier and I'll say, why in the world would I ever move and live right beside a volcano? That's pretty dumb. Let's pray it doesn't happen. But if that happened, it would be certain that there would be enormous death and destruction, which would be very sad. And that's why you have... If you drive around Puyallup, you know, this is the lava flow, or, or this is the lava escape route, go this way. It'd be certain that many people would die. Even more certain than that. Even more certain than the sun will come up tomorrow. Sun will come up tomorrow. Any, even more certain than that. You know, there could be An eclipse. Tomorrow. More certain than that is that you will die. That I will die. Even Jesus died. Only Elijah and Enoch didn't die. Yet. Everybody else died. Even Lazarus died twice, apparently. <laughs> Died was re- was resurrected, and then it would have died again. And so this passage is saying: then Christ died; everybody died. Even Christ was judged for sin, and resurrecting over that judgment, a type of victor- uh, victorious- victoriousness over that judgment. Not one that he deserved, but one that he willingly received. But what's interesting is that that's part of this main point, but it even then goes further. Every believer, yes, will be judged not for our sin. Romans 8.1, therefore there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Believer, when you die, I heard somebody say this. I was listening to a sermon on on this passage, and at the end, when he got here, he said, there's going to be a big screen. And when you die, all your sins are going to be played forth on this screen for the whole universe to see all of your bad thoughts. Have you ever heard a sermon like that? If you grew up Southern Baptist, you probably heard many sermons like that. I've heard many sermons like that. That's not what this passage is saying. This passage is saying, if you haven't trusted this Perfect sacrifice of Christ on the cross for your sins, then yes, you will die and you'll be judged by God because you haven't trusted Christ's judgment for your sins. Believers will be judged, 1 Corinthians 3, 1 Corinthians 4, but for our reward. But this passage is saying, as certain as death and judgment is, that that's, that should be seen obvious in this passage. Because there's so much death and blood. Die, blood, died, blood. It's the idea of death judgment, death, judgment, death, judgment, death, judgment. You sin, you're going to die, you're going to be judged by God. That's what this passage is saying. But then verse 28 says, at the same time, yes, that's true, but also it's true that Christ is going to come again, but he's not coming to bear your sin, but he's coming to rescue his people. The first time he came as the Lamb of God, the the second time that he comes, he's going to be coming as a victorious savior to reconcile all things in heaven and on earth to himself. So he is a mediator who has resurrected, who is going to return, not as a suffering servant, but as a conquering hero. It's finally saying, yes, it's true, the, the Messiah is going to be this, this king of kings and lord of lords who's going to be this victorious savior. And he was certainly on the cross, much more so than they could possibly imagine. The first time, though, he came, like Isaiah 53, as a suffering servant. When he comes again, he's going to come and be this savior king. And it adds to those who eagerly await him. It was Spurgeon that said this, It should be a daily disappointment that Christ has not returned rather than a foregone conclusion that he would not return today. It should be a daily disappointment that Christ has not returned rather than a foregone conclusion that he would not return today. Do you want Christ to return? Do we want Christ to return? H- have you ever been disappointed at the end of the day, uh, Christ hasn't returned today? H- has that thought ever entered your heart? At the end of the day, I might say, oh, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers lost today. I went to the Reneers game, and they lost. They were head. Why do you leave that pitcher in? Oh, I can't believe this. Ah, I did terrible today. This other person did terrible today. So many things disappoint us. It's the fact that Christ didn't return today, causes us disappointment. This word here which says, "Await him," eagerly await him." it's the idea of a of a head and a neck stretching out like this. Now, most of you don't know this because you're so tall. But being a short person, if I'm in a crowded people, what I have to do to see is I have to get on my tiptoes, stretch out my head like this, and then still sometimes I I can't see. But it's this idea in this passage, waiting eagerly, is this idea of stretching out. I want to see. I used to ride trains in India. And if you ride trains in India, you'll see the Indians hanging on. And they stick out their whole bodies and their heads sometimes like this, off the side like this, trying to look out to see what's coming. That's the type of anticipation and longing and passion that we should have in our hearts to see Jesus. So the idea of this passage is, since we have a mediator between God and man that has paid the price of my sin with his life and with his death, and he rose again, he's going to return. There should be in our hearts, not this, I'm petrified about seeing God and about seeing Christ. Rather, I, I know 100%, I'm not going to meet God saying, look at my life, look how good I was. I'm not doing that. When I see God, I'll say, you know I've been a rotten scoundrel. But my hope is your son, Jesus Christ. His life and his death and his resurrection. That's the only reason why I should be in heaven. That's it. And so then that gospel truth then is what we build our faith on. It's what helps us to continue to go forward. All of Hebrews chapter 11, which which it talks about living by faith. And it gives all these examples First, it's this faith on that bedrock truth. I am saved not because of what I've done, but because of what He will do. Because of what He did, and even what He will do when He comes back for me. Recently, I was listening to a podcast, and I heard this man uh, talking, and the other man asked him, When you die, do you think you'll go to heaven? And this man who was a former Marine and then pilot said, I think I will go to heaven because I've really tried hard to live a worthy life. And I felt so sad. I felt really sad for him because I think, horizontally speaking, he has sacrificed much and he's tried to be a good person. Horizontally speaking. But if I was to talk to him myself, I would say, Sir, <laughs> you and I can never be worthy enough. There's only one who is worthy enough. And that is Jesus Christ that lived a perfect life, that died on a cross, and he sacrificed himself. Trust him. And he is worthy enough to satisfy God, and he will take you to heaven. Build your faith on His sacrifice and not your own. And that's the joy of faith. And before we get into chapter 11 and 12 and 13 and living by faith like the great heroes of faith, it must be, we must be confident and must be sure that we have trusted that cross work of Christ. That we're not trusting in the ministry that we do or how pure we are, but rather we're trusting in how pure and the ministry that Jesus Christ did in his life and death and resurrection. What are you building your faith on? Don't build your faith on your faith. Build your faith on the work of Jesus Christ. Build your faith on his blood work. And that will really give you joy and freedom. Lord, thank you for this word. Lord, may the things which I said, which are clear and accurate and truthful, Emblazon it on all of our hearts. That which was incorrect or off, Lord, may it just fall by the wayside. Glorify yourself and your people. We ask this for Christ's sake. Amen.